Let's go to New York Times investigative reporter David Farenthold, who, among his other talents, is a specialist on Donald Trump's finances, which is important now because he's got some uh, rising court penalties that uh, he eventually will have to pay for. Good morning, David. And what, what is the what, what is the total amount of uh, monetary judgments against him at this point? Well, we, I mean, they just added up. They just got a little higher with that $83 million uh, penalty from the Gene Carroll, E. Gene Carroll uh, defamation case. And I assume it'll be higher pretty soon once the, uh, the New York Attorney General's lawsuit against Trump uh, over his business practices concludes. So, yeah, they're, they're, he's facing some serious monetary penalties. But we all know what his strategy is in every case involving the law, which is delay. So I'm sure he will do everything possible to delay paying these penalties as long as he can. Right. He, well, um, I mean, all these things will be appealed, but does he get to, dur- during the appeals process, can he, do they suspend his responsibility to make those payments? They do, yeah. And I think, you know, if we see him get elected in the fall, I'm sure he'll make some case that presidents shouldn't have to pay these things. I and mean, I think he's he's already, you know, the fact that these arguments don't work for him is not as big of a deal as the fact that they delay and they, you know, they give, they tire his opponents out. They force his opponents to burn attorney's fees. So this is a victory for E. Jean Carroll uh, and it will be a victory for the New York attorney general, but it's not the end of the road by any means. Yeah. E. Jean Carroll was on MSNBC yesterday with Rachel Maddow. Here's part of what she said. This team of brilliant young people have, as you said, um, stood up to the man who by the way rachel is not even there he's nothing he is without he is like a walrus snorting (laughs) and like a rhino flopping his hand it was he is not there she was trying to basically uh, diminish trump's prestige saying once you see him in court having to abide by the rules of the court uh he's completely uh, deflated. He's a shell of his uh, public persona. But but that doesn't seem to be the way his supporters look at it. No, I mean, they obviously didn't see him in that courtroom. Uh, and I think people see him differently when he's up on a rally stage. You know, obviously a president is like an actor or a presidential candidate is like an actor. You know, there's just so much effort going into making you look bigger and more impressive. You know, there's so much stagecraft into building up your persona. But I think there is a little bit there that we should think about in terms of what he is like now. I, we and I talked about this before. I think the more voters see him this year and see what he's like now, they may have a different opinion than this sort of like blustery big figure they may remember from his presidency or from 2016. Yeah. He still, though, represents basically a, uh, a culture that says, uh, you know, we, we, we give the middle finger to the government, right? Well, you know, or unless we are the government, then we use it to give the middle finger to everybody else. But I think, yes, he he still represents this idea that if you're just mad at the world about your place in it or you wish that you had more respect, that the answer is just to, you know, to throw that anger out, you know, to turn that anger into policy and to to sort of direct it outward to people you don't like. Right. In the uh, Fulton County case, we discussed this briefly and uh, Fonnie Willis's relationship with one of the uh, prosecutors. Has there been any movement there into whether she will remain on the case or, or what's going to happen with that? No, there's been nothing. There's a judge in Fulton County that has called for a, you know more details about that. It's a very serious allegation uh, that she supposedly colluded with her one of her assistant the assistant investigators and maybe even used public money to go on trips with him. 
nobody has provided any evidence at all. There's been some allegations made, but nobody's provided any evidence that's true. Uh, the judge has asked for evidence from both sides and for Fannie Willis to defend herself. Uh, so that case is sort of on in limbo until that's resolved. Yeah. Now, on the border thing, help me understand this. There apparently is a very constructive compromise brewing here where Congress would provide additional money to uh, to the uh, border services so that Joe Biden could exercise his executive power and basically shut down the border. I mean, that's the words I heard him saying. We're, he's ready to yeah. shut down the border if he's given the funding. But Donald Trump is, is telling his uh, acolytes in Congress, no, don't do this deal because it doesn't go far enough. And that that well, basically I, risks killing the whole thing. I'm a, I'm a little unsure as to where I mean, do members of Congress really want to get control of the border or are they going to give up on that for the sake of not getting in trouble with Trump? I think what hap- what will happen is the Senate will agree to this uh, and the Republicans in the Senate will sign off on this deal. Uh, that will, you know, as you said, give Biden more power to shut down the border, provide more money for border enforcement. I think reduce a little bit the the, the parole and and the, the sort of the free freedoms that are given to people who come claiming asylum, uh, and also provide money for Ukraine at the same time. But I don't think the House will go along with it because of Trump. Because you know, Trump, I think, is saying it doesn't go far enough. But what he's really saying is, I don't want to give Biden a victory on this issue in an election year where I'm going to use the border against him. So the politics will be, this will be interesting. I think that, that if the um, if the Republicans in the House shoot it down, the Biden's responsibility to go out there and say the border is not my fault. I'm trying to fix the border, but Republicans want this to be a problem. They don't want it, they don't want to be constructive. They want chaos. They want to cause a problem. Um, I think that you know at this point it's already a political victory for him if he can use that. Um, and if he uh, if somehow gets this power, if Republicans in the House pass it, then he will have a chance to say, look, I'm doing something about the border. Yeah. Well, I would, I would expect him, of course, to use that yet yeah, to his advantage. So that, that also is confusing to me that Trump would, would give him this uh, this thing to run on. But it, it's an emergency for I mean, I have some acquaintances who live in Arizona. It's a mess. And and I, I would think that the, the ranchers down in that area who are dealing with this every single day would say, hey, look, take the win. We're in trouble here. Yeah. I think you're right. Then that is a, it's a huge issue in places like Arizona, Texas, New Mexico. Um, that you're right. It's not. We're talking about the politics of it, but there is a very serious issue. And then obviously, place, people in Seattle and Denver and a bunch, bunch of other places where there's migrants coming in large numbers feel it too. So yes, it, I think it is going to get caught up in election year politics. But it's obviously something that's not just a creation of election year politics. It's a really serious issue. David Farenthold from the New York Times. Thank you, David. Thank you. Coming up at 645, Chris has a choke point for us. But first, we're going to tackle the question of how to respond to the drone attack on a U.S. base in Jordan. The attack was launched by a Syrian militia backed by Iran. It killed three American service members. It injured 40 others. And President Biden has promised a response, but a response that does not trigger an all-out war with Iran. I called up CBS military analyst Jeff McCausland. For a list of options. There's lots of options, I think, Dave, are, first of all, trying to thread a needle between taking a major response that hopefully deters future attacks, while at the same time not tipping the scales into a major regional conflict that could stretch across the region. With all the ongoing conflict in the Gaza Strip, Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, Houthis in Yemen firing at U.S. naval vessels, uh, and the like. So I think we'll measure this in terms of intensity and geography. Intensity being, the, obviously, the number of aircraft involved, 
amount of ordinance number of targets? Is it a multi-day campaign or a single day of a short duration? But the geography will be important. If the airstrikes, for example, are solely in Syria, from which this particular attack seems to have emanated, it's probably the least escalatory because the region there in eastern Syria is not controlled by the government of Damascus. In fact, it's controlled by the Syrian Kurdish groups that we actually support these folks being there as part of the operation to rid the area of ISIS. If we strike targets in Iraq, that is more escalatory, and particularly escalatory with respect to the Iraqis, because in the last few days, even prior to this attack, we began negotiation with the government of Iraq to establish a timeline which will likely result in the withdrawal of all U.S. forces from Iraq, which is a goal of these groups as well as Iran. Or if we follow the suggestions by several leading Republican senators to strike Iran itself, that's the most escalatory. And the possibility, of course, of them responding through those proxies all across the region, possibly touching off that regional conflict I mentioned, responding with long-range missile systems of their own against U.S. forces across the region, or perhaps doing things like blocking the Straits of Hormuz and driving up the price of oil dramatically overnight. So that's kind of the tightrope that the Biden administration is trying to walk. They may also look at lateral efforts, such as obviously more economic sanctions against the Iranians, perhaps trying to shut down the export of oil by Iran or even going after Iranian assets outside of Iran itself, such as a ship operating in the Red Sea, we know that we believe is uh, providing intelligence from the Iranians, that's from being an Iranian ship, to the Houthis for their attacks on U.S. naval vessels and commercial shipping. CBS analyst Jeff McCausland. So no shortage of options. Choke points. Let's go. Buying tires could be a lot harder and a lot more expensive because they're going to be regulated by the legislature. Here's Chris. The bill being considered by the legislature would give the Department of Commerce the authority to ban tires that it deems inefficient and bad for the climate. It would apply to any replacement tires for cars and light-duty trucks under 10,000 pounds. It would give the Department of Commerce the ability to fine people from $100 to $10,000 for violations. Democrat Representative Chapalo Street of Seattle is the prime sponsor. At the end of the day, we're facing a climate crisis and we need to use as many possible tools to get ourselves out of that as possible. And this is one way to increase the the uh, gas efficiency of some of our vehicles. The bill focuses on the rolling resistance of tires. Heavier and more durable tires have more resistance and therefore they're less energy efficient. The heavier the tire, the less miles to the gallon you get. This bill would ban the sale of tires that don't meet the efficiency goals. You would still be allowed to go to a different state, buy tires, come back to the state, and you would not be prosecuted. This is not a way to sort of check the tires that people are using on their cars. Um, It's literally changing the market dynamics for what tires are available in the state. But it would limit your ability to buy whatever tire you choose for your car. It would likely eliminate many cheaper tires, making buying replacements much more expensive. Jennifer Ziegler is with Les Schwab. Her company, as you would imagine, does not support this bill. There's a difference between making sure consumers have a range of information and actually prohibiting the kinds of tires that are available to them. And the bill goes beyond just providing consumers with a range of information to make decisions, it actually gives commerce the authority to prohibit the sale of certain types of tires. There's also a concern that this bill would make tires less safe. To achieve the rolling resistance necessary, you would need to reduce tread depth. 
And that's not a good idea, according to Tracy Norberg, who represents the U.S. Tire Manufacturers Association. The easiest way to reduce rolling resistance is to reduce tread depth, which will in turn, as you're exactly what you're saying, it will reduce wet traction performance, it'll reduce tire life, and it'll increase scrap tire generation. In addition to making tires less affordable and less durable, there are concerns many small tire stores would be put out of business. This bill would not impact snow tires, spare tires, motorcycle tires, off-road recreational vehicles, or agricultural vehicles. Many lower resistance tires are available out there today if you want to buy them, but this bill would likely ban them uh, if they don't meet the goals that they have set out. So this is separate from the other campaign I've heard about, which is to ban a certain additive that goes into the that rubber is correct. tires because it kills fish or something? That is correct. This is a separate situation. Uh, they are also working on that, but this would uh, basically make the tires get as much fuel economy as possible, so more miles to the gallon. But there's a trade-off with that in order to make that happen. Like, for instance, when I put on my snow tires, they are heavier, deeper tread. They... I don't go as fast them. I lose five or six miles to the gallon when I put them on. Right. Uh, but this would then eliminate that uh, for non-snow tires. You can buy thicker treaded all-wheel that may not meet this guideline, and then th- those would be potentially banned for sale in the state. Wait, so what is what's the mileage improvement? Between uh, high and low rolling resistance, they're saying, uh, and this is again, this is Commerce saying it could be, you know, up to you know ten miles to a gallon. They say, however, the industry analysts are saying that's a very rosy projection, and there are some similarities being drawn to what uh, Ecology said when it would be pennies. For the gas tax, carbon tax increase, yeah. and it turned out to be more than just pennies. Right, right now, there's a very uh, somewhat distrust with some of the government numbers when it comes to promoting these climate bills. Yeah. Um, couldn't you achieve the same thing just by lowering the speed limits? Yeah, you, plus, could, you plus could do that. we'd be a little safer. I mean, I'm sure people would, of course, violate them since we don't enforce it anyway. But Yeah, the, the enforcement, I think, would be a much bigger component uh, of some of the things that we do on the road that uh, right now people feel like they can do without any any risk of responsibility. Really. It just seems if, if this is going to cause, okay, so you get a lower rolling resistance, but the tire wears out sooner. You're buying tires faster, and that faster. tire ends up in the, in the in landfill. Uh, and, and plus, it, it is less safe. So, and considering we get a little rain here from time to time, they it would provide a little less uh, wet uh, re- wet traction. So, interesting well, idea. It's only had a house hearing. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Uh, so far, it's not hasn't had a hearing in the Senate as of yet. We often don't often hear stories about people who are living on the street, struggling with addiction and homelessness, pulling themselves out of those situations to fight for people who are still stuck on the streets. And that's what Seattle City Prosecutor Chris Stockwell is doing. He's written a three-part book series detailing the life of an alcoholic, drug-addicted, mentally ill, homeless man named Jack, who epitomizes the lonesome souls on the streets of Seattle. And many of Jack's experiences are drawn from Chris's own experiences on the streets. We wanted to ask him about how his own struggles with addiction and homelessness have affected the work he does as a city, an assistant city prosecutor. What we do, you know, for people that are mentally not competent to stand trial is, you know, competency is raised. So what I see a lot in my job is, you know, a lot of people, you know, are in King County Jail is essentially a holding pen for mental health issues. Mm. Um, you know, we don't have, we, in my opinion, I can't speak for the city, I can't speak for the city attorney's office, but in my opinion, we don't have an answer for homelessness. Um, we don't have an answer for, 
you know, like, you know, the influx of, you know, people that we see on the streets right now. We, the, my job, uh, you know, a prosecutor is essentially, you know, a blunt object. And it's like prosecuting misdemeanor crimes is what we do in my office. Mm-hmm. And I can, you know, like take, uh, you know, a thoughtful hand in doing that. And I have a lot of discretion to dismiss cases in the interest of justice or to find, you know, like alternatives to punitive things. And we have a lot of therapeutic courts, you know, that that's the goal of. But at the end of the day, you know, we're still prosecuting people a lot of times who really need mental health. So what was your secret to to coming back and recovering? Was there a person? Uh, did you did your brain just evolve all on its own? What? You know, I, I, I had the, the benefit of, you know, of, of kind of, you know, bottoming out early. And, you know, it's, I, I by no stretch had the worst, you know, variety of alcoholism in the world, you know. But by the time I was about 26 years old, you know, I couldn't hold a job. I had actually, you know, had to move back in with my parents. Um, yeah, I couldn't pay my bills. I mean, I, I, was the, I, I was homeless as a teenager for about a year. But then, you know, like in my early 20s, I basically was living in a car, couch surfing, you know, to where, you know, at whoever's house would, you know, like have me. And, uh, you know, I was I was drinking and it was like I, I blacked out every single time I drank and I stayed blacked out for until I came to, you know, I would fall asleep. I'd fall asleep for like 10, 12 hours. I'd wake up and I'd just feel terrible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it, it just, it just beat me up like quick. It beat me up. Was there anything quicker. that you yeah. could have done or that your parents could have done or that a teacher could have done or some other public servant could have done that would have headed this off? No, I don't think so. Because the, the thing is, is that I feel like it, it got headed off pretty early, which is, you know, like on the one hand, it's like I wanted to, you know, like to recover because I recognized pretty early on. I, I recognize this is an, a very serious problem for me. I recognize that the first time I drank, I blacked out and I was like, wow, you know, like that's that's odd. Most people I talk to, you know, that have issues with alcoholism are either have issues with, you know, like denial, like I, I'm not an alcoholic and carry that notion well into a adulthood, you know, or they just don't feel enough pain, you know, to want to recover. It's like, I wasn't in denial about the fact because I had grown up around a stepdad who was an alcoholic. And so I knew what alcoholism looked like. And so when it came, you know, to visit me, I, I knew what I was looking at. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to live my entire life, you know, as an alcoholic. I wanted to do some other things with my life. Chris describes himself as the counterculture hiding in plain sight. And the counterculture argument in Seattle, of course, regarding homelessness seems to be, let's leave them alone. Let them keep their encampments uh, as is, work it out without uh, help from us. So I asked Chris about that. It's a tough issue. I mean, we just had a, a, a trial last week and, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, media was there kind of, you know, like more alternative media, like stranger, real change. And, uh, you know, a lot of protesters that stopped the sweeps protesters. I wasn't trying that case, but what kind of struck me is that, you know, we try cases, we try cases where we have, you know, like the same sort of maybe like middle-aged indigent, maybe non-white person and no media shows up. And then this was a case with like a 26 year old white, you know, like a indigent person and all these protesters showed up. And what struck me is, you know, a lot of times with these kind of more insignificant cases like this obstruction case, I would look for a way to dismiss on that. 
But, you know, the fact that all these people showed up for this one defendant, but didn't show up, you know, for like the 20 other defendants that have been in the same position mm. kind of, you know, like gets at, you know, hey, there's an equality issue here, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, I can see that because I'm in there day in and day out. So um, I, you know, my job is to is to is to prosecute people. But when I see things that look like, you know, like there's like, you know, like like people are are essentially petitioning for a better variety of justice for this person than this person, that rubs me the wrong way. You said that um, jury trials are a dog and pony show. That is my opinion. (laughs) Certainly not the opinion of the city attorney's office. No, but I mean, um, yeah. But what would yeah, and you would like to replace them with professional juries? So explain that concept. Yeah, I wrote, that's a, that article I wrote probably five six years ago now, and uh, I mean it was just an idea. I just I, I write things whenever something mm-hmm. pops into my head, and sometimes they make it into something like on my medium page, you know, or into something that I publish. But um, yeah, I do think that you know, like uh, most cases, in my opinion, are won or lost during jury selection. And we are trying to pick juries that are, you know, going to find strongest for us. So the prosecution is always trying to find a certain type of juror. The defense is always trying to find a certain type of juror. And, uh, you know, my, you know, like opinion there, you know, after doing this is that, you know, the people are trying to find jurors that are essentially biased for their position. Mm-hmm. Nobody's trying to find an unbiased juror. A, a system where you have like people that have been through some sort of legal training, some sort of minimal legal training, you know, they're able to do some sort of legal analysis that, you know, can be pre, uh, I don't know what the word is, pre-approved for lack of a better word, you know, to be like an unbiased jury. You could actually mm-hmm. like use a computer to produce an unbiased jury. Seattle City Prosecutor, Assistant City Prosecutor, Chris Stockwell. He's the author of several books, including a three-part series titled Down and Out in Seattle and Tacoma. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. Some Chicago kids aren't even in kindergarten yet, but they're learning about empathy and kindness at school. Is that fun? Thanks, so big. Kindness is part of the curriculum at West Loop, one of Chicago's hidden gems. Teacher Monet Nix-Hodges tells CBS affiliate WBBM-TV. We're teaching them that it doesn't matter how big or small they are, but it really matters how big their heart is. So how does it work exactly at this West Loop school? We have circle time with them. We ask them first, you know, put the question out there. What do you think it means to be kind? Just to kind of get gauge um, what they already know about kindness. During one story session, a teacher asked the kids this. Who remembers what a food drive is? Why do we have food drives? Because some people are hungry all the time. And that's why we help. That's why we're sponsors. And the kindness curriculum includes special characters to keep the kids engaged. For example, Bubbles the Elephant is the team leader, dogs, grace and charity, love, philanthropy, and there's more. Little children also need hands-on so they can see. Once we talk about it, then there's an activity. One recent project was making care packages for migrants arriving in Chicago. And we're going to make bags so that they can brush their teeth, have some soap, and feel good about themselves. They get to learn about um, what it means to be kind, um, to, to actually hands-on. That's one reason to teach them this at school. The 
others? We feel like it's important because a lot of things are going on at home and that may not be an area of development. This is their home away from home. You've heard from the adults about the kids. I love to help. Children are so resilient. They're open to change. Um, They catch on really quick and they want to know. I think if we start now, we'll have a better world later. She said, I want to help. Kids are helpers. And now, from the Jen Ursley Show, here's G. Scott. You heard about the uh, new $15 top price for the uh, express lanes on 405. I did. And uh, you will cheerfully pay it, or uh, what's your stand? I mean, sure. Sully and I talk about this all the time. You You don't really have a choice. But here's my stand, and here's what I think about this and everything else that keeps increasing in this state. This will have a regressive impact on the state. Makes sense considering that this is the most regressive uh, tax state in the country, second only to Florida right now. Um, You're going to have a lot of people paying a larger percentage of their income, especially from low income individuals, than those that have higher income. People with higher income is whatever. I'm just going to get to work. I got to get to where I got to get to. But for those with lower income, they have a real impact on that. Let me just really help people really understand where I'm coming from. I call it the hole in the boat, right? Every single day we talk about you guys, our show, people in the communities. We're talking about our unhoused issue or homelessness crisis that we have. So we're constantly talking about what can we do? What can we do? Housing, this and that, and all those things, right? What if I tell you that what can we do still ends up being the same? We continue to address a problem that is way too late. And the hole in the boat part I'm talking about is I'm talking about people that are living paycheck to paycheck, People that are housed right now that are barely making it. And so all of these regressive things that continue, these little added addition with the new tolls now, where there's carbon tax and where there's groceries, where it's increase in rent. There's so many people right now that are barely holding on. And any little movement when it comes to paying more money will help increase with our homelessness crisis. So that's why I call it the hole in a boat. There's a hole in a boat, and we keep trying to just bail water out and take that bucket and try to get it out and get it out. But there's a constant hole that nobody wants to repair. But we want to wait until the boat sinks, and then we want to throw out the life raft. Mm. How about this, y'all? How about we put a little, address the hole in the boat, and don't let which the boat means, sink. Which would mean an income tax. Get rid of all these regressive taxes. Have an income tax where people who are struggling pay zero. And people who have money pay the freight. You, you know those are fighting words, right? <laughs> you, you, you know every time that comes up, there's a lot of I'm people that don't you like. You would accept that? I've been saying that. Okay, that's been my battle cry mm. for for years. Has been the income tax, but for some reason, people don't agree with that. But I find some interesting. Yesterday, our show just celebrated four years, and when I first brought that up four years ago, text line blew up. Heck no. Now, it's not, I'm not, I mean, there's still people that disagree, but it's not like it used to. Mm. Because people now are saying every time Dave and Colleen and you guys turn on the microphone, every time Ursula turns on the microphone, you guys are telling us about some new tax in this state. Or Sully is telling us how, hey, by the way, tolls are getting ready to go up. All of these things. And we are starting to come closer together on this opinion, 
right? It's not about left and right and all this kind of stuff. It's about green, baby. It's about keeping it. It's about <laughs> it, equity. It's about equity, Kale. Mm-hmm. Bingo. So this toll is 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 something that. I guess it's just par for the course, right? Like, uh, this is just one of those things. And I do know this, that when I used to really, really get down on the budget, and I don't know if you've ever wrote it down with your significant other and you write it down like, okay, we need to do this. The first thing that you, when you're starting to, where we got to cut corners, food, and where you drive, Right. So when you start putting in that toll thing and somebody has to go to work, that is an unmovable thing right there. And it might fluctuate whether it's eight dollars or nine dollars or or peak time and all that, all that stuff. But these are things that are just going to be baked in to your budget and your bills. G. Scott with Ursula. He'll be proposing the next income tax initiative. I thought you were about to say proposing. Like, bro, you know, I did that a bunch of times. You feel me? OK. And time for our legislative update from Olympia, where the 2024 session is well underway. Let's go to Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich. And this issue is uh, always creates uh, some excitement. Mandatory liability insurance for gun owners. How? Yeah, would... well, any kind of gun bill is exactly. exciting down there. How would this work? Well, it's a new twist on the right to bear arms. Now, Senate Bill 5963, which is supported by Democrats, would mandate all firearm firearm owners in Washington state to acquire and maintain a residential dwelling policy or some sort of separate insurance policy that covers losses and damage resulting from an accidental discharge of a firearm in that home. Now, the bill also requires firearm firearm owners to retain uh, proof of insurance at the location where the firearm is stored. Now, if someone doesn't own a home and they rent and own firearms, they would be required to have a liability policy covering the accidental discharge of a gun. The homeowner would not be responsible. It's up to the renter to have that. Now, during a hearing yesterday, Craig Reynolds, of uh, he's an educator from Mercer Island, summed it up uh, this way for the supporters. We all hear that guns don't kill people. People kill people. Well, people who own guns need to be financially responsible for the weapons they own that can kill. So the bill requires insurance companies to ask if the property owner or the renter owns a firearm, and if so, where that firearm is stored and if it's stored securely. Security, uh, securely. Uh, the insurance company must also inform the person of requirements of carrying a liability insurance to cover the accidental discharge. Now, Gene Weiss supports the bill and has a very understandable comparison, I thought. My 19-year-old niece, Veronica Weiss, was brutally murdered in a mass shooting next to her campus of UC Santa Barbara by a young man who never should have had firearms. We are legally responsible to carry liability insurance when we drive a car in our state. We've acknowledged that cars pose a potential danger to everyone. That same mandatory liability insurance should be applied to firearm ownership. Patty Cougar... Kuderer, the Democrat from Bellevue, the senator, is the bill's sponsor. This requirement does not regulate, limit, or control the manner or method in which people may keep or bear arms. Instead, it simply says you must have liability insurance. And I didn't know this, Dave. If you fully own your house and it doesn't have a mortgage, homeowner's insurance is not required. So what do you do in that situation? Well, Mm -hmm. the language in the law says that even if you don't have, uh, you don't really need homeowner's insurance, you must have a policy covering accidental discharge. And you can get this in what's known as a surplus line of insurance rather than get a full home insurance policy. Now, Cooter addressed the elf in the room, which is a Second Amendment argument on the right to own guns. The Supreme Court 
Court of the United States decided that law-abiding responsible citizens have a right to own and carry guns, but it is beyond dispute that the right carries with it an inherent deadly risk. Now, Cooter argues that the proposed legislation aims to reduce the human and financial costs of these incidents without infringing on Second Amendment rights. She said that death and injuries in the state cost taxpayers at least $169 million a year, inclusive of all the costs related to accidental shootings. Now, there was a plenty of support and opposition to this bill during that initial hearing yesterday in front of the Senate Crime and Justice Committee. In fact, so far, the most people who can sign in, whether pro or con, you don't have to testify. It was 1,900 people signed in split pro and con on this. Hmm. As expected, Abby, um, Abilene Klein, representing the National Rifle Association, opposed the bill, saying it would increase insurance rates and, uh, rates and price legal gun owners out of their homes. This bill is a barrier to entry for firearms ownership, and it will price out low- and middle-class gun owners, ensuring only the elite may maintain home ownership and their constitutional right to keep and bear arms. But Yakima County Commissioner Amanda McKinney, testifying as a, as a commissioner, not herself, testified against the bill and took a shot at the Democratic majority that's in power in Olympia. This is something that we've had a common theme in this legislature, is that if you don't have a behavior that we agree with, that we'll fine you, put a tax on you, and charge you until that behavior meets the ones that we expect. So, so, Dave, if this passes, uh, and Colleen, if it passes, this is going to court. The city of San Jose has passed a similar law, and it passed one court hurdle. Now, the city of New, uh, state of New Jersey tried to do this, and it didn't get anywhere in court. On the uh, on the argument that this would discriminate against people who don't have enough uh, money for insurance, I mean, guns themselves, just on their own, are pretty expensive. Do they want price controls on the on the price of a firearm so that people can better exercise their Second Amendment rights? Well, they haven't talked about that. And one thing in this, obviously, is, well, what's the insurance company going to do? How much is going to be that extra premium if you own a gun or several guns and ammunition? Yeah. And again... Do you have any idea what, the, what, what an, a policy like this would cost? No. no there was no mention no of it. No other state I, does this? Uh, City of San Jose had a... Uh, it was a little bit different. They had that uh, insurance policies that set limits, like you can only have X amount of dollars you're covered for. Mm-hmm. Uh, this the way this bill's written, it's wide open because it's the first attempt at this. There's no threshold limits. There's no limits to how much coverage, the liability coverage you have to have. Like you have, for a car insurance, you have to have three hundred thousand uh, dollars and such. There's no numbers associated with this bill at all. Okay, one more thing, and that is protections for election workers. Uh, what, what's the change here? Yeah, so the Senate has begun debating a bill that would make the penalties for harassing an election worker in person the same as if it was done online. Now, opponents say it violates the constitutional right of freedom of speech. Now, the House has passed this bill twice and had no, had no success. But this is the first time the Senate has seen a similar version on its side of Rotunda. Now, the, in 2023, the governor signed a bill that making harassment of election worker online a Class C felony, but it did not include harassment in person, which is a head-scratcher. Um, as it stands now, if a person were to send an email to an election worker threatening to kill that worker, it's a Class C felony, and that worker would be able to uh, register their address with the Secretary of State in the address anonymity program. However, if that same person were to show up in person and make that same threat, 
that crime would be a gross misdemeanor, lesser than a felony, and that election worker could not enroll in the address and amenity program. Now, Representative Mari uh, Levitt of University Places, she's a Democrat, is the bill's sponsor of House Bill 1241. This bill aligns the methods of the threat, so regardless of the elements in person or online, it is treated the same. Our election workers deserve to be protected when simply serving us well. Now, several county auditors testified in favor of the bill, including Cowlitz County Auditor Carolyn Funzingland, who lost half her staff due to the threats against her election workers following the 2020 presidential election. Staff were exhausted, feared for their safety, and simply weren't paid enough to tolerate the constant hostility. And she testified that the daily interaction with the public has changed. The hostility seemed to come from people who weren't involved in organized politics and did not take the time to ask questions or tour our facility to learn how we conduct secure elections. And finally, Julie Barrett, representing the conservative ladies of Washington, opposed the bill. Because we are concerned that it could potentially infringe upon the constitutional rights of Washington citizens to peacefully picket or protest in accordance with existing law. Why not protect more than just election workers? Um, Could social workers and other workers who are experiencing a great deal of harassment in their line of work potentially be included in policy like this? And Dave, that last part she says, that's been the argument against it, is that why just election workers? Why not Mm -hmm. everybody else that could be harassed in person? Why can't that law cover those people? Matt Markovich on the legislature. Thank you, Matt. You're welcome, Dave. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.